going to have the perfect storm of uh, worship leading. Matt's away, Derek's away, Nancy Meyer's away, Steve Israel's away. Who will lead? There are the Meyer boys. Super thankful. I play no instruments. I cannot take any credit. You know, they just, they have determination. And so I'm thankful for their service. We're going to read uh, from Romans 9 and attempt to make it all the way through uh, this chapter this morning as we, as we move, continue to move through the book of Romans. Paul says this in Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 1. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offering. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for dishonorable use and another for honorable? I reverse those two. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles? 
As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word from your word. And as I will say, of all the places in your word, of all the texts that can be preached, there are some that are very difficult. And they're difficult because of the content that they cover, and they are difficult because of the diverse range of opinion. And so, Lord, I pray in humility as a people and as a preacher that we would say, Lord, how do you intend to feed us from this scripture? What use can we make of it? How will it fuel our joy and delight in you? How will it increase our thankfulness? How will it help us to love you with all our heart and soul and mind and strength? Love our neighbor as ourself and encourage us in the work that you've called us to, Lord, to make disciples. And so we pray that through that filter that we can see the good of a passage that is debated and causes confusion, sometimes even sorrow. We pray that you would help us to find joy here, Lord, because you are good and you've given us a savior and we're secure in your love. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Um, I'm, I'm, I tend to kind of be the read the book kind of a guy, not go see the movie. Right. You know, uh, there are times where I have seen the movie and then I go and I read the book and the book is better or it's different. There are times where uh, they uh, somebody will say, oh, you know what? This is a great book. I'm going to make it a movie. And they totally ruin it and miss the point. And you're like, what book did you even read? Um, and then there are movies uh, where where the book is completely and utterly different from the movie and they're both good. I've seen, I've seen this happen. Um, there are very few that, that really nail it, right? Um, I think that this passage, what, what, what has happened many times when, we, when, when, when Christians come to this passage, 
There are, there are maybe two groups, right? There are those who are like, I need, I need love from God. You know, I need to be rooted and established and secure in my identity. And anything that makes it questionable or strange or scary or this weirds me out. And so the, the attitude on this is like, let's make the movie a little bit different than what's written in, in the book, right? Let's just let's kind of change this a little bit. And then there are, are some who come to this, this passage and they're like, this is a linear description of the way that God chooses. And it's all laid out and it's all clear and it's completely and utterly understandable. And they're just like, we don't, we don't care how it makes people feel. We're just going to put it out there on the table. Boom. And people walk away from hearing it and they're like, what does this mean? Right? Because it's talking about election and choice and God says that he loves one guy and hates another and 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 I know where the heart and mind go for many people they're just like oh okay that's cool about that but what about me right does God love me or does he hate me what if he chose not you and this text can become a source of 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 struggle and anxiety and pain. So what I want to do is I want to, I want to approach this like we're taking the text and we're turning it into a movie and uh, we're going to zoom out sometimes. We're going to look at big Bible picture, right? What, what's, what's being discussed here? And we're going to zoom in and we're going to say, hey, what's going on with God? What's, what, what, what is being expressed here? And then we're going to say, hey, I'm ready for my close-up. Like, how does this apply to me? You know, what, what is being said about me here? I think it is incredibly important that the way that Paul begins this passage where he's talking about God's sovereign choice and his independence and his right to choose and that God is just in all that he does, he begins by talking about his passion for reaching people with the good news about Jesus. He says, I am speaking the truth. My conscience bears me witness. I'm not lying about this. I've got great sorrow over my people. I wish that I could be accursed. Now, he can't. You can't, you can't do this. You can't say, Jesus, you know, abandon me and take this person. It doesn't work that way. Control one person, one person in your life. You have a, a, an ability to affect their life in the, the greatest ability to receive the gospel, and that's you, Right? Paul can't say, switch me off and switch them on. It doesn't work that way. But he says, I wish that I could be accursed by way of example of showing how passionate that he is that his kinsmen, according to the flesh, the Israelites, that they would come to believe in the truth about Jesus. And then he goes on and he talks about their heritage, that they're the children of Israel and that they were adopted as a people by God. God actually says... To, to them, out of Egypt I've called my son, speaking of the, the nation, which would later be fulfilled in, the, in the, the prophecy about Christ. He says, to them belong the glory and the covenants, the agreements that God made with man, the descending of God's glory on the tabernacle, seeing that, that's the Jews own that. They received it as a people. The giving of the law, the worship, talking about all the temple things that went on. They, they had that within their culture. And the promises made by God to people all belong to the Jewish people. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Wow, what a privileged people, Paul is saying. 
And yet they are separated and distant from God. He is saying here that he has a passion for a people that they would know God, a passion for a people who is so incredibly blessed and swimming in opportunity to hear the truth and know the truth about God, and yet they miss the point. They don't understand. They don't don't see the benefit in the present of their rich heritage and blessings. One pastor has described what is going on in this passage when later on Paul will will talk about how zealous the Jews are for their law and that they're pursuing righteousness through law. He says they are going to hell with a passion for God. It is completely based on, 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 on pursuing and attaining righteousness the wrong way. Paul's heart towards them is not, I'm better, I'm on the right team. I understand. I know the mysteries. I've decoded it. That's not Paul's attitude. Paul's attitude is, why am I on the inside and they're on the outside? His heart is breaking. And I think this mirrors, in part, God's heart for people. Jesus stopped before he went into Jerusalem and he said, you're the city that kills all the prophets that sent to them. I'd have have taken you under my wing and protected you, but you're not willing. And he wept, wept for them. A nation may have a heritage that is rooted in Christianity. A nation may say that it has a passion for God. It it might say that it is one nation under God. It might have trappings of, of Christianity and Judaism in its laws and in its institutions. But the people who live in the present generation must have a personal engagement and a personal relationship and a personal passion for God. And they must pursue him in the right way. The way that he has laid out by faith. We have to be very careful when we look out at nations in the world and we say this nation's Christian or this nation's good and this nation is bad. Because what is going on is not what a nation has in its past, but the heart attitude of the people in the present. Paul's emotional state with regard to the Jewish people is that he is broken for them, and he desires that they come to know the Lord. As the church of Jesus Christ, do we wish that our country was more Christian so that we could say Merry Christmas without feeling awkward? Do we wish that our nation was more Christian so that we would not be quite so weirded out by some of the things that we might see on television? Right? Do we wish that our nation would be more Christian so that our laws would be a little bit easier for us to align up with our thinking? Or do we look out at our nation and say, there are millions and millions of people who know nothing of the Lord? And there is a singular generation that we are assigned to reach. That the Great Commission applies to them, and they will be gone in a hundred years. And whoever still remains with the gospel to share it, it will be their burden to share with the next generation. 
Our burden is to share with the present generation. Do our hearts break for their need or do our hearts desire that our existence would be a bit more comfortable and that we would feel more secure? Do we have a burden for people? Paul has a burden for people. He also has a burden for the reliability of God's word, and that's what he talks about in this next section, because he's, he's saying, okay, look, the Israelites who God made promises to and who he cared for have largely in great numbers departed from the truth. And he's going to pick this theme back up later and he's going to say, hey, I'm saved and I'm, I'm Jewish, not in this chapter. So he's going to say God's still being faithful. But what he does here is now he's going to defend the reliability of God's word. And this is a piece, it's a, it's a major part of why this is an important scripture passage, an important scripture passage. God made promises to that nation to use that nation, to be faithful to that nation, to carry them through. And now that Jesus has come into the world and has died for their sins and the Savior that they've awaited for is here, the nation in large part is not turning to believe in the Messiah. And so somebody could say, as as Paul is working his way through Romans 8 and saying, you know, that everything that happens is working together for your good and that the love of, of God will ne- you can never be separated from that and that there's there's nothing that can can tear us apart and that and that no charge will come against God's elect and Paul makes these massive huge incredible promises based on the character of God and somebody could just pipe up and say oh really why did Israel abandon Jesus then why why has Israel walked away from God Why hasn't God saved them in droves? So Paul says, it's not as though the word of God has failed. That's why he moves to this point. And then he's going to walk through scripture. Okay, so we're zooming back out now and looking at at the big picture and saying, "What, what what is Paul doing here? And he's saying, not everyone who's born an Israelite is part of the people of God's promise. Okay? God made a promise to Abraham and to Abraham's seed, his line, his lineage. But if you look at the text, what what, what Paul says here is he says, not all are the children of Abraham because they're his offspring. Not every single child that Abraham uh, was the father of was part of the promise. And so he points out that Ishmael, child of Hagar, is not included, but that Isaac is. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. It's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise, he says. And then he moves on to another example, just so that he's maybe not accused of picking and choosing Rebecca, who was um, Isaac's wife, had two children in her. And though they had not been born and had not done anything good or bad, God chose Jacob and not Esau. He said the older will serve the younger. The principle that's important here is that God has not failed to redeem a people. He has carried through on his promises faithfully. He has accomplished what he wants to accomplish. Now, this is not an aside. It connects back 
Because if God can be demonstrated to have failed on his promises or reneged on his promises, then what confidence do we have in the all-important, soul-anchoring promises of Romans 8? And what confidence do we have in the promises of the rest of Scripture? So, Paul is going to then zoom in on how our salvation works. Why does God call in this particular case? Why are the children numbered through, uh, through, through Isaac? Why are they numbered through Jacob? And Paul says here very clearly, it is like this. They had not yet been born. They'd done nothing good or bad, but in order that God's purpose of election might continue so that God's plan of calling a people to himself would be carried out, not because of what they had done, but because of his gracious choosing and work. There is no way to dodge this if you're like not into election and predestination and choice like it is i don't know how you get around this it's so abundantly clear that that god is saying here that he chose jacob and he did not choose esau why because his gracious choice is the determining factor in who comes to him not because of his works but because of his call now immediately we start to get anxious and nervous and things start to 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 rise up within us and we say this isn't right this isn't fair paul's going to get to that but let me lay the foundation by saying this when you look back in at romans chapter one and two and three I believe a piece of what Paul is saying here is that if God did not call you to himself, you would have never repented. If God did not say, you come to me, you never would have. The Bible says very clearly there is no one who seeks God. And we're like, yeah, I kind of sought him. No, we didn't. The scriptures say that we don't. Perhaps we seek him for advantage or for comfort or for our own benefit or for something. And so we think, like, I should get some religion in my life, right? You know, I should earn some points with God because, man, you know, like they say, it's useful to know a cop. It's useful to know a plumber, right? It's useful to know a carpenter. Like, hey, probably useful to know God, right? You know, I need some of those points in my life. I love points, right? Going to pick up Jack from camp the other day. Pulled up to Dunkin' Donuts. Lady says, three bucks for this cup of coffee. I show her my phone. Dink. You know, she takes the picture of the, with the laser on my phone. Free coffee, you know, from points. I love it. It's great. No cash comes out of my account, you know. They just hand me free coffee just for going there a lot, right? There's no such thing as free coffee. Points are great. It's not the way that this works. There are some who champion this idea and they they champion in such a way that it becomes cold and cruel and people hear it and they say, no, this is not good because they champion the idea that, that God must have his choice. The scriptures teach all over the place, though, that God loves and is merciful and he calls real hearts most willingly and that he will never turn any who come to him 
And so there is no reason for anyone who seeks God and who is saying, I need a savior to think, maybe I'm not chosen. I don't think there's any, we don't have any justification to tell someone, well, maybe you're not chosen. It's not even something we ought to worry about. But there are some who say, but man must have his independent choice. To which I think, if man has complete and utter independent choice, God would allow all of humanity to die and show grace to none. And so Paul moves into a section that we could call the justification of God. We see first the mercy and judgment of God. Paul begins this section. He says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is God unfair? Is this not fair? That's what he's saying. And let me tell you what, I mean, every time I revisit this subject, every time I go back to these these topics, I'm always like, "Mm, this feels really choosy. Like, I, I don't know. Paul's saying here, is there injustice on God's part? By no means. He says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It depends not on will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. What is the answer to this question then of if there is injustice on God's part? God shows, if we zoom out and we look at the text here, he says that he is showing tremendous kindness based on a reading of the entire book of Romans in saving any. Any. He is not under obligation to save anyone. But he does so because he is gracious and kind and merciful. And he is right to punish sin. And he does punish sin. If you flip back in Romans chapter 3 to verse 21, we find the heart of the good news about Jesus as Paul lays it out. He says that the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The, the law and the prophets in the Old Testament bear witness to this righteousness. It's not the righteousness of God that's lived out by being perfectly and completely obedient. That's old covenant righteousness. Jesus lived that way. No, this is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who believe. There's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and they're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God put him forward as a a propitiation, that's a a perfect offering that, that satisfies his wrath. He put him forward as an offering in his blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he'd passed over former sins. God had been forgiving and forgiving and forgiving all throughout history. He had been forgiving people and saying, because you believe in me and put your faith and trust in me, I'm going to save you. And he's not punishing them. Somebody's got to get punished. Because God is just and sin must be punished. Or God's standards of right and wrong make no sense whatsoever. 
And so it says here that he put Jesus forward as this sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith to show his righteousness. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just. He needs to maintain his justice. but also so that he could be the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the truth, folks. People say things like, do you believe? And they always, they, like, they pick the, the obvious one, right? The granddaddy of all bad humans, right? We go right to Hitler, right? Are you saying that if Hitler repented, that he'd just get off scot-free? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. No, because... Every wrong that he had ever done and every right that he left undone would have been paid for by Jesus. Paid for. And do I think that that happened? Probably not. We might be shocked. I doubt it. But, I mean, sorry. I don't know if that's judgy or whatever, but uh, let's just be clear. I mean, all of our charts, like we got Mother Teresa over here and Hitler over here, they all break down if, if we call this into question. Anyway, sorry, that's just an aside. Sometimes your illustrations just run away from you and you think, this will be good, and then you say it and then you're like, no, that was dumb. Um, God uses people for his own purposes. And we might think, that's not fair, people ought to have freedom, they ought to be able to do whatever they want, that's okay. okay, great. Make yourself and make your own universe and exist in it apart from all the good that's been put in this universe and all the benefits that have been extended to you and then you can have absolute, complete, and utter freedom. There is only one absolutely, completely, utterly free being and that is God. And he creates and makes for his own purposes. He raises up Moses to deliver and Pharaoh to show his power. Now, we might think hardening of, of the heart is God finding fault. He's the one who determines, right? I don't know. I look at the story and I see years and years of arrogance and sinning against the law of God by the pharaohs, throwing all those children into the river. Doesn't that give God the right to put this guy on the bad pile and say, I'm going to use you to show my judgment? And Moses, who is humbled and who receives the correction of God, God say, I'm going to raise you up and use you for my glory. God has a right to do with human beings what he will. But I believe in some way that God's use of people is consistent with their heart. And I don't know how that works. Does, he, does his use determine their heart or their destiny? I, I, I don't know. I mean, we are in the most difficult passage of Scripture, in my opinion. This is one of the hardest places to, to go when we're, when we're talking about, about people. And you can read hundreds of pages on this. But I think the next sections really clear it up because it's the basic attitude and orientation of the purpose, of the, of the, of the attitude towards God that I think determines how we answer them. And so we, we zoom out from God's grand global purposes, right? I mean, Pharaoh is the classic example of do not oppose God, you will fail. And Moses is an amazing example of you can't get these people through the, through the sea. You can't do this. Deliver them, Moses. And Moses is like, what? 
God's like, stretch out your hand and I'll strike Pharaoh and I will part the sea. And Moses is like, okay, you know, and the water moves. Like, he didn't do that. That's not magic. God did that through him. They are the, the, the examples of God's power on a grand and global scale. But now we zoom in to humanity and to the heart. And having presented that God chooses and chooses how people will be used, we're given the responses of the human heart. He says in verse 19, You will say to me, then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? What, what Paul is driving at here is that there are certain people, there is a heart orientation that unless God says, I will completely and utterly strike out any demand for justice, I will, I will remove all punishment for all human beings at all time, unless it's completely and utterly fair, they'll say, you're not right, you're not good, you're not kind, you're not fair. How can you still find fault for who can resist his will? <clears throat> there have been times where perhaps in a moment of childish anger, every single one of my children has decided that they were going to attack me, right? Now I'm not talking about as teenagers, I'm talking about as little kids, right? And they get into the like, you know, like swinging. And man, when they're that size, you just like put them on the ground, right? You know, just like bump put them there, or you hold them by their head away from you, and they're swinging and swinging, and it's like, they have no power. They can't do anything. They want the light on, right, and I turn the switch off, and I just keep my hand there. No, right? You can't, you can't resist me. I'm dad, right? <laughs> and now they're teenagers. Um, <laughs> who can resist God's will? And we shake our fist and say, he's not right, he's not good, because he doesn't give us everything that we demand. Do you know what humans do when God says, okay, I'll lower my standards? Right? We're like, we want to be able to do this. God's like, okay, we're like, and we want to be able to do this too. Right? They say, if you give a mouse a cookie, what's he going to want? He's going to want a glass of milk, right? You know, like... There has to be some limit somewhere. You can't just constantly give in. God is a righteous God and a loving God, and he will not lower his standards, though he will show grace and mercy through Jesus. Ultimately, when we look at our condition on a global scale, no human being has a justification to stand before God and say, you should do this or that. You ought to. You must. It is all grace because our condition before God is one of guilt and a violation of his principles. Now, I want to point out that what's said next is said in the form of a hypothetical, okay? And this is the, this is the passage that just, it, it drives people to question their own security and it drives people to question the goodness of God. Paul says this in the form of a question, and, and so I just want to say something to you in, in a moment as a pastor, if this is going to totally evaporate your worldview and your vision of a loving God. We'll do that in a second. 
Just remember this is a hypothetical. Paul says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Right? God is going to show that he is just. And so what he has done is he has created all these dishonorable vessels, right? Containers that are used for bad things, right? We've got a container out in front of our house. I think it's 90 gallons. Right? We throw all our trash in it, that thing heats up in the summer, and you go in there, and it's like there's all kinds of life and sink and nasty in there, and it's like, it's, it's crazy. That is a dishonorable vessel, right? That is never coming in my house, ever, ever. And then there are honorable vessels, right? Like, you don't put paint in them, you don't put chemicals in them, like, that's the coffee pot, leave it alone. You know, don't use it for anything else. It's an honorable vessel. What if... In order to make known the riches of his glory on vessels of, of mercy, he's endured vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, is what he's saying here. That, that maybe God has prepared two kinds of people, one to show his wrath and one to show his glory. And then he says to those whom he's called, not just from the Jewish people, but also from the Gentiles. Now, I want to point out that's stated in a hypothetical, and it's important that we not say, therefore, there are two groups of people evenly marked out, those whom God loves, those whom God hates, and it's my job to get down and, and into the, the wiring there and determine, is this person on this category or that category? And Don't do that. Paul's point here is that he is he is saying that there are those who will always resist and they will never receive an answer and they will never be satisfied until God has erased all of his standards. That is a distinct class of person who will never say, I'm a sinner in need of a savior. They will never humble themselves. Paul also is pointing this out in the midst of a crowd that is saying, the Gentiles are saying, God has abandoned the Jews. He's thrown them away, and now he's saving Gentiles. And those people were Gentiles. And there are those who were Jews who are saying, nope, you know, we're the people of God. We've got the temple. We've got the tablets. We've got Moses. Like, we are the promised, we are the chosen people. And all these Gentiles, we don't know what they're thinking. They need to become Jews in order to be saved. Can't be saved. Paul's saying, no, 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 people. It doesn't work that way. It's not based on your ethnicity. It's not based on any of that stuff. It's based on whether or not God has shown mercy and grace to you in Jesus. Now let me say something to you. Uh, just as a pastor and as a friend. There is a, a, a gnawing doubt that can take root in the soul that can either say, I am definitely not one of the chosen ones because I am not good enough. And that will dig out the foundation of your faith. And there is another gnawing thought, and that is, God is not kind, he is cruel. To which I would say this, the child of God should look to God when confronted with these subjects and say, he is merciful and loving and kind and rest in his love because that is clearly stated in the scriptures. And if you're seeking some kind of balance and you can't find balance unless you switch this off, the love of God, then don't pursue balance. Okay, does that make sense? 
what I'm saying? You've got to fight to maintain the love of God in your life. You've got to understand that and believe it and champion it and not let it be destabilized by other truths. I believe that, that people have been driven mad trying to balance these two things. Whenever a pastor, and the church that I grew up in actually hired a guy who, um, when he was asked a question about Calvinism and, um, and uh, what's called Arminianism, the, the difference between these two doctrines, his response to was, Calvin couldn't figure it out, but I did. And I told my mom, I said, do not vote to hire that guy. Don't. Because brilliant theologians haven't figured this thing out. They haven't, they haven't found a, a balance. It is, there is a mystery here. And you need to embrace that. If you need to err somewhere here, if you need to say, I need to take a step back from this because I don't get it. I can't, I can't see it all. And Paul's going to close Romans 11 this way. He's going to say, behold, the kindness and severity of God. If you have to err, err on the side of his love and his care. Because what Paul turns to now is, he is he's moving away from talking to the person who is, who is arrogant and, and exalting his soul against God and saying, how dare you? What gives you the right? Now he moves to the compassionate nature of God. Verse 25, indeed, he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And the ones who were not called beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. God calls people to himself in compassion and love to be his people. And if he did not, where would we be? This is verse 29. If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Paul is, is teaching the people as we zoom back out in the middle of their battle. Jews are better. Gentiles are better. Paul is, is speaking to the people and he's saying, God forsook a nation full of people who treated his blessings and his kindness with contempt. They said, we're the chosen people. We can do whatever we want. And if we're honest as Christians, sometimes we do that in our hearts, don't we? We say, I... I'm saved by grace. That means I can, I can, I can bend here. I can, take, I can presume on God's kindness. He forsook a nation who treated his blessings with contempt. But he adopts a people who receive his gracious kindness with gratitude. And that's the balance I think we need to strike. Jesus says that all who God calls, all who've been given to him, will be saved. But those who come to him, he'll in no way cast out. Balance is important here. This is a text with no simple answers. It defends the righteousness of God. It exalts his power. I think it lays bare why and how it is we are saved, but it does not create a situation where, where people who have a tender conscience and say, am I excluded? I think that we can, we can say, no, you are invited. And those who would say, how dare God? We can say to them, you don't understand. Paul ends by saying that salvation is by faith. Verse 30, 
what shall we say then, right? Maybe where you are right now, you're like, how do all these pieces add up? They add up because they're all in Romans 9. That's kind of, Nancy was like, are you done with your sermon? I'm like, yeah, it's like this. I, I, I don't know. Some, the text is the map. I don't, I don't know. What shall we say then? This is what, what Paul says. That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. Why is it that, that the people who were not associated with the law and who knew none of these things and who had no heritage were flooding into the church because they understood that they needed a savior. They understood that they had sinned against God and that they'd failed to do the good that God required of them. And they heard that they could receive the righteousness of God by faith. And they said, I want that. Thank you, Jesus. And then Paul says, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They said, we look at our heritage and we see the laws and we are going to earn this. We are going to deserve it. We're going to do something to make it our own. We're going, to, we're going to put in all our own contributions and we're going to say, we were good and therefore that makes us your people. But Paul says they've stumbled over the stumbling stone. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. There are some who will look at the gospel and they will say that makes no sense and it is not fair, and people should be judged on the basis of their goodness and how hard they worked and how good they were. Paul says they, they're tripping over the stone. They don't understand. They're all condemned by their works. No one has done good. No, not one. Just Jesus, the Savior, that he's the source of righteousness and that they need to put their faith and trust in him because whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And so the big answers of how this all works and how it exactly, precisely works out, there are lots of good answers out there, intelligent answers. There are a few that make a whole lot of sense, and I think there's one that's right, that God wills that we would come to him, and in his willing makes it that we would come to him most willingly. I think that's the answer. How does that work? I don't, I don't know. But it fits in a sentence, and I think it's faithful to the text. But when it really comes down to it, we need to ask ourselves, am I humble in the eyes of the Lord and seeking for his grace, or am I standing and demanding that he treat me fairly? Because that's missing the point. If God treats me fairly, I'm in trouble. He shows me grace, and I win. So the encouragement is this. Pursue a righteousness that comes from faith in Jesus. If you are, are living in a way and you're saying, Lord, you know, I want, I want to be a good person, and I want you to judge me on the basis of my actions, then understand that, that you are, have been deficient. No one can earn righteousness that way. But... We can receive righteousness because God gives it to us because of what Jesus has done for it, and it can be yours securely 
and forever. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to share even through an incredibly, I would say, difficult text. I pray that you would help us to look at it from your perspective and to see what you are speaking to. And I pray that, that you would help us to, to dig down deep in the places where, where we feel at risk or we feel danger or we feel that you are being unjust. And we pray that you would lay our hearts bare and that we would see our own idolatry and that we would also see our own need. And I pray that we would move through to a place of gratitude where we say, thank you for your kindness to us. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for Jesus, the foundation of our righteousness. And we pray that we would humbly receive all that we need from him each and every day. And that we would walk in gratitude and holiness and truth. Father, I pray if there's anyone in here who has never put their faith and trust in your son for the forgiveness of their, their sins. And to fill up all that they lack in goodness pray that they would reach out to you and ask you for your forgiveness and grace and that they would receive the promise that you forgive when we confess. You cleanse us from all unrighteousness and all wickedness. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We pray your grace on all that we do.